Matthew 24, verse 27. For as a lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you once again for this blessed time that we can look into your word and be taught of you. We pray now that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide, that you would use me for that purpose, and I pray that our hearts would all be open to that truth. Father, that you might plant a seed in our hearts today that might grow and bear fruit for your glory. We thank you once again for this church, for this time, and we pray that our lives would indeed give you the glory in all things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Have it gone through your life thinking you understood something and then someone told you something about it and it sort of all clicked in, into place and you realise, oh, I didn't really understand that at all. It's some sort of key, some sort of important information. For a long time, I struggled to understand why there were two Houses of Parliament. I struggled to understand why there is a House of Reps and the Senate. I don't understand the meaning of both. What, what, why did you need two? You know what I mean? I realised I understood the purpose of the, the House um, uh, that wrote the legislation, the lower house. They're, they're the guys who came up with all the ideas. They're, those are the guys who, who tried to implement things, who tried to get things through. They were the ones who actually made all the promises during the election. Then you've got this other house floating around there. What do they do? Found that only later that they actually review all the things that the, that the lower house does. So they're there to make sure they're there as a bit of a security measure. To make sure that the guys in the lower house don't go a little bit crazy. You know what I mean? So they're, they're meant to be like a, a security blanket. They review things and they make sure that that if it's not right, they send it back. They keep on sending it back. Well, it has its benefits and it has its um, detriments as well. Some people would still argue that the house of, um, well, the upper house is not even required. But someone once told me and explained that to me, and then I understood how the whole system worked, and it actually made sense to me. There are some things in Scripture that, unless you understand or know certain key things, a lot of it doesn't make sense. For example, if you read the Old Testament and you read a lot of the prophecies about Jesus, until Jesus came and fulfilled all those, all those prophecies, some of them are very like difficult to understand. 
some are difficult to perceive. You know, like even the, the first promise that God made, Adam and Eve, that a son would be born to the woman, a seed that, that a son would be born who was a seed of a woman. Now, do they understand what they actually meant, that it would be a virgin birth? Maybe, maybe not. But Israel was confused about a lot of the prophecies because they couldn't reconcile in their minds how you had a suffering servant that had so many prophecies associated with that that would, would come and, would, and would, uh, would help Israel. And then you had this coming king as well. Well, how can you have a king and have a suffering servant as well? It didn't make sense. Kings don't generally suffer, do they? Kings don't, aren't whipped and, and, and all these bad things happen to them. A king who comes in glory doesn't normally suffer those things until Jesus came. And we realised that he first came. There were two comings. That there was the first time he came and he came as a suffering servant when he came as a lamb. And then there was a second time. See, so we have the added benefit of a key, a special key that opens up the Old Testament. That's why we recommend, when you're reading the Old Testament, to read it in the light of the what? Of the New Testament. Because if you try and read the Old Testament without understanding the Old Testament without understanding the New Testament first and the and the important truths that God gave us in the New Testament, then you're going to get confused in the Old Testament. And there's another important key in Scripture, and that's Israel. You see, Israel, throughout much of the Scripture, God gave them an important job. And that job was to preserve his word, to write his word and to preserve it through the ages. God used Israel as the vessel and the vehicle through whom the Messiah would be born. And he used them and their job was to not just produce the word of God to preserve it, but also to declare it to the whole world and to live it. Well, they failed in a couple of those things, didn't they? They didn't exactly proclaim it properly to the world. They didn't exactly live it. And sometimes they don't understand it. But we're blessed because they were faithful in writing it. They were faithful in copying it and preserving it. If you don't understand Israel's part in God's prophetic plan for the future, you will struggle to make sense of a lot of the Old Testament prophecies and a lot of the new ones because most of the Old Testament prophecies have Israel included in them. So there are some who say, well, you know, Israel sort of messed it all up. They've lost all their, all their promises now. You know, God gave all these promises about the land and about the future and that. But you know what? They've messed it up. They've lost everything. So now the church has got it all. Well, you know something? The problem with that is, is that, you know, when God makes a promise, he tends to keep it. So when God says that in the end, Israel will possess the land and Israel will be redeemed and Israel will be not the, the, the tail but the head. When God makes all these promises to Israel um, and he says this is what will happen, not what might happen or it's going to be contingent on how faithful they are, he says this is what will happen, then you know something, I'd rather believe God than, than try to force my own interpretation into it. I'll give you one example. We read the prophet Daniel and it says that at in the time of the end that Michael the great prince will stand up on behalf of the children of Israel. You know who Michael is, don't you? The archangel. 
In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, have a listen to this verse. It says, And at that time, which is the end, right, shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. Who are the children of thy people? Who is he speaking to? Gabriel speaking to Daniel. Who are Daniel's people? Israel. Now, why is Michael standing up on behalf of these people? And it say, he continues to say, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, Daniel, thy people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book. So who were Daniel's people? Christians? No, there were no Christians around in those days. Actually, the Christianity, or the church, as we know it, the Bible says, was a mystery to them in the Old Testament. A complete mystery. They didn't understand it. It was only revealed after Christ. So, the only way to interpret that verse is to believe and understand that in the time of the end, Michael shall defend Israel as a nation and as a people because they will come under threat. And it fits absolutely perfectly with the rest of Scripture. The time of this trouble that it speaks of in this verse, we understand perfectly to mean a time of tribulation in the end, where Israel will play a key part and be very important in it. it, it that verse in Daniel parallels perfectly with this chapter in Matthew about the end and also in Revelation. Today, we will see the continuing importance of the people of Israel as a cultural identity, as a nation, and as a chosen people of God, and what God's plan is for them. Now, the last couple of months, has it been a couple of months or has it been more? I lose track when I start preaching. Over the last couple of months, we've been focusing on the Olivet Discourse, which is chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. And Basically, these two whole chapters are one long answer. Two whole chapters Jesus gives to answer some questions that his disciples ask him. Turn, turn to verse 3 of Matthew 24. And his disciples ask him a few questions. And Jesus is, takes two whole chapters to answer these questions. And it says in verse 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So they wanted to know when this temple that they revered so much and they loved so much would be absolutely destroyed and when would be the sign of Jesus' coming and when would be the end of the world? So Jesus spends all his time in two chapters answering those simple questions. Jesus gives his disciples in these two chapters a detailed look at his second coming and of the end of the world. And in that passage we've just read this morning, verse 27 to 34, there are some very basic elements that come out of it very easily. The first is, look at verse 27, For as a lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It's an instantaneous event. It's a quick event. It's not something that will take generations of time and won't take weeks and months and years. This is something as quick as lightning flashing across the sky from the east to the west. Jesus' coming shall be visible 
just like you see lightning and it will and it will occur very quickly and it will be from above the coming of Christ, it also says, Sarah says in verse 28, for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Eagles don't gather around living people. Vultures and eagles gather around dead bodies. So the coming of Jesus the second time round will involve a judgment, will involve a war, and a time of judgment on the wicked of the earth, and many will be slain as a result of it. And the image is of, of carrion, of, of eagles and vultures gathered around dead bodies that are left and strewn. After the tribulation period, it also says that shall, there shall be signs in the heavens. Now look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. It says, immediately, is it before the tribulation of those days or after? Your Bible's got after, right? So after the tribulation, there are signs in heaven. There will be the sun darkening, the moon not giving her light, the stars falling from heaven, the powers of heaven. Some people get a little bit confused with, with signs in the heavens. There are people today looking at red moons or blood moons and saying, that's that. Well, that's not that. Simply it's not that. The reason is, is that the sun darkens and the moon, sorry, the moon turns to blood, the, the sun doesn't give her, her light and the powers of heaven are shaken after the tribulation, not before. Unless we believe the tribulation is right now, which I don't believe it is. Okay? So it's clear that the Bible teaches that after the tribulation, the sun is darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and there are other parallel passages which say it turns to blood, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. So then after the tribulation period, these signs happen, and then after those signs, Jesus is seen in the clouds. Jesus is seen in the heavens coming in glory. Okay? And he comes to defeat the armies of Satan, and after he comes, he sends his angels out to gather his elect to himself. Clear enough? Nice, simple order. Turn to Revelation chapter 6, verse 13. We'll see a parallel passage or a, a similar passage. Revelation chapter 6, verse 13 says, And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. It seems like a pretty big earthquake. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now... In Matthew chapter 24, it says that when the sign of the Son of Man 
comes in heaven, okay, in verse 30, it says, And then shall all the tribes of the earth do what? Rejoice? What does your Bible have in verse Matthew chapter 24, verse 30? What happens to them? They mourn. They cry. They're afraid. They match exactly what this is in Revelation. They want to hide because a day of judgment has come. Because he, his wrath is coming upon the earth and they don't want to be around. They realise it's too late for them now. The judgment of God has come. And they want to hide themselves in every den and rock and it says that every man, doesn't matter where, what position in society they have, whether they're great or whether they're small, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, will want to hide themselves because they have rejected the Son of God. So is that clear enough for everyone? Really clear. Okay. Now Jesus changed tact and he says in verse 32 to 34, Now learn a parable of a fig tree. When his branches yet tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things shall be fulfilled. I grew up with fig trees in my backyard. We had three big fig trees. I remember all the, uh, all the figs that we used to eat. We used to love those fig trees. Um, but not when they dropped all their leaves. The fig trees have got pretty big leaves. So when they go yellow when they fall, they make a whole lot of rubbish on the ground. And if you ever touch the leaves of a fig tree, or you touch the sap, it tends to, it tends to be annoying. It tends, to, it tends to irritate your skin. But Jesus is saying, think of those fig trees. So they go through autumn, they drop their leaves, and then spring has come, and they start to bud new leaves. And Jesus is saying, well, you know, when you see, you would normally, when you see a, a fig tree budding, or any tree actually, um, understand, you're un you understand that spring has come, and guess what's around the corner? Summer. Okay? And fruit will come as well. Now, turn to Luke chapter 21 with me, because Luke has a parallel passage to Matthew. And Luke gives us a slightly different way of writing it. Luke chapter 21, verse 24. And they, okay, now when he says they, he's referring to Israel here, okay? And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. When does this occur? Before Jesus comes back or after? Before, right? Okay. When does it occur? During the tribulation period it occurs. And then shall they see the Son of Man, verse 27, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves, a summer is now nigh at hand. 
So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the end of the tribulation period when all these things come upon the earth just before Jesus comes back. Okay? Um, who is he speaking about? Who are made reference to in this passage? It's Israel. Israel is made specific reference to in this passage. So if this revolves around them, they're going to be around at that specific time. And Luke finishes the passage much the same way as Matthew does, that when you see these things come, know the return of Christ is nigh at the door. Now, all these, so it says that these things, where he says that when you see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. It's referring to all these things that occurred during the tribulation period, not now. The second coming of Christ does not occur now or occurred any time now the rapture occurs any time now where god takes his church away the second coming of christ and people the problem is that people get these two events mixed up a lot just like israel got mixed up the king aspect of of uh, the savior and the servant they get mixed up with those two things there has to be a removal of the church first and then god starts the program with israel again during the actual the, the tribulation period and Jesus says, who's the message for then? The message is more for Israel. When you think of it. So when they see all these things happening, the sun going dark, the moon turning to blood, stars falling from heaven, get ready because Jesus will soon be here. Now Matthew 24, 30, 32 says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Now, is there any significance to the fact that Jesus uses a fig tree as an example? Why did he use a fig tree? Does it have any other significance? Would the people who, who listened to him at that stage understood some other significance to it? Or could he have used any tree? Well, Jesus doesn't choose things just out of random. Everything that God writes in his word is there for a reason. Okay, and most likely, yes, they would have understood exactly what the fig tree represented. Now, most commentators, see where it says that this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Most Bible commentators believe that that refers to the creation of Israel in 1948. Okay? So that fig tree represents Israel. We need some cool air, I think. We're all going to um, suffocate. Can you put both of them on just for a little bit? Most Bible commentators believe that the fig tree budding is a picture or a symbol of Israel when it started in 1948, just after the Second World War. Now, we'll consider that for a moment. Was the creation of Israel a miracle? What do you reckon? Do you think God had anything to do with the creation of Israel? Maybe. Maybe. Let's have a look at some of the circumstances. Which nation, not having had any sovereign sovereignty over its own territory or borders for thousands of years, has ever been created in a day? I don't know many other ones. 
who have been created in a day after not being around, not having its own country or control of its own country for thousands of years. Which nation founded had the same, in the same day for the next few months, had to defend itself against multiple enemies? When it was just created, it was immediately attacked and won. I don't know any other, I don't know any other country who had no sovereignty over its borders, they were, just, they were just coming in to attack. Which nation, despite being surrounded by all nations hoping to destroy it, has survived seven wars since 1948. Seven major wars. Two intifadas and, an, and a broader Arab-Israeli conflict. There is no other country in the world that has survived those types of odds with a small... you know how small Israel is? I mean, how, wi how wide is it? I don't know the actual figures, but you're not talking very wide. Okay, so a third of the size of Victoria. Can you imagine if we were living in Victoria, shrink it down by two-thirds, right, and put all of, it, all of us in, that, in that, uh, that space, and then surround ourselves, because we're blessed in Australia, we have massive oceans all around us. To get to us takes a lot of effort. So we feel very safe because we're far from everyone else, right? Okay. Well, imagine that you, that wasn't the circumstance. And at every border around you, there was a country ready to destroy you who was looking for an opportunity. And those countries love to gang up together because they're all on the same page. Now, imagine if you're attacked not once, twice, three times. Imagine that a number of times they've come together to actually attack you from all angles at the same time. How would you be as a country? Would you be a bit nervous? You may. How have they been able to defend themselves till now? Is a miracle in itself. Is there any representation here with the fig tree? I believe there is. There is something absolutely miraculous that God was able to plant a nation called Israel, that were his special people, that have kept their identity for thousands of years, even though they were scattered throughout the whole earth. Okay? They were able to come together after thousands of years, reinstitute their original language as the language of their, of their country. Okay? They kept their identity, they've kept their scriptures, they've kept their language, while other nations that were much more powerful than them you include Babylon, which was the, the world empire at that stage. Is there any Babylon at, at the... Do you know any country called Babylon at the moment? No. There are people who are descendants of the, of the Babylonians. But there's no country called Babylon. There's no country called Assyria. There's no country called Persia. There is no Rome, as far as I know. There's Italy, but there's not Rome. There's no Medea. There's no... All the other countries around them. How many how many countries do you know that are called the Hittites or the or the Jebusites or the they're all disappeared, gone, finished. They don't exist anymore. Yet a little a little tiny nation which is comparable to those is still around after all this time. And is and is a difficulty and a burden for the whole world, the Bible says. How much effort is 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 expended by the world looking at the troubles that are happening over there because of this one little nation. It's actually amazing. 
And the Bible says that, that this generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled, which is Jesus' return, which is the stars falling from heaven, which is the, the moon going dark, the sun going dark, and the, the powers of heaven are shaken. It says, this generation shall not pass. Now, is he talking 1948 till now? Or is he talking something else? We'll have a look at that. Is this type of budding that the Lord is referring to that designates Israel, the beginning of Israel, as a sign of the end? Alan, who's not here today, because of his, uh, his work commitments last night, shared a sermon with us a number of weeks ago where he shared an interesting hypothesis concerning the picture of Israel in the Bible as an olive tree or as different types of trees. Okay, And the first and, and most common way that Israel is referred to is the... Do you know which is the most common tree that Israel is referred to? It's the olive tree. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16, and we'll look at where God directly calls Israel his olive tree. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16. Are we cooling down a bit? That's a bit better, isn't it? Now we're cold. There are blankets and, uh, and jackets available in the room over there. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16 and 17. It says in verse 16, The Lord called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. For the Lord of hosts that planted thee hath pronounced evil against thee. For the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense unto Baal. Who's he speaking about? Israel and Judah. He's saying that he planted them, they were an olive tree for his glory, and he's pronouncing judgment on them because they decided to worship Baal instead of him. So he's saying, you've, you've provoked me to jealousy. I'm going to kindle a fire on top of you now. And I'm going to judge you as a nation. So God directly calls Israel an olive tree. And in Romans, I want, you won't need to turn to me just there. The Apostle Paul calls Israel an olive tree again. And it says there that we are as wild olive trees, as Gentiles, we've been, we've had the fortune of being grafted into that original olive tree. That we were a people without a nation, without God, without the, the word of God, that we've been grafted in. So that branches were broken off and that we've been grafted in. But the picture is that Israel was the original olive tree that God planted. But what about a fig tree? What does that represent? Turn to Matthew chapter 21, verse 17. This is a, a three chapters before the Olivet Discourse. Something happens, and most of you are familiar with the story, and actually Alan went through the story as well a few weeks ago. Actually, when was it? I think it might have been. No, it was, it was a few weeks ago. Matthew 21, 17 says, And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. 
Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. This is the Lord. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only. And said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Now what does that picture mean? He's got another fig tree happening over here. He's gone to it. He's looked for fruit because he's hungry. doesn't find anything. And he says, you're going to not grow any fruit anymore. And the next day, the thing just shrivels up and dies. Does the Lord get angry with trees? Or is it that for a purpose? Turn to Mark chapter 11, verse 12. We see a parallel passage and hopefully this will help us to understand it. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Now the Bible's got a wonderful way of putting bookends between important stories. It's got a wonderful way of actually helping you to understand by the way it's structured about what the message is all about. Now, if we read Mark chapter 11, verse 12, it starts off the same way. And on the morrow, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off and having leaves, he came, and if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now, that's where it stops. But now look what continues. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and brought, bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. Now look at this. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter called to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answered, answering, saith unto him, Have faith in God. Now look what, look what Mark does in this passage. He starts off with the fig tree that didn't produce fruit, right, for the Lord. And Jesus condemns it. Then the very next thing, Jesus is doing what? Who's he judging? He's judging the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders who were doing the wrong thing. They had turned God's house into a business, into a money-making venture. They were ripping off the people and then saying they were doing a service to God. And Jesus condemned the whole thing. He was judging the leaders, the spiritual leaders of his day. And that's why he had to cleanse the temple. So who was the target of Jesus' anger? The priests. The priesthood, the spiritual leaders, the scribes. The people that were meant to be leading their people into the truth. And then he bookcases that. He puts two bookends together of this judgment on the fig tree. You reckon that might be there for a reason? I think it is. I think that Jesus is making a very clear point that this picture 
this fig tree that was judged and showing no fruit, so God judged it, was judgment upon, a picture of the judgment upon the religious leaders of the day, of religious Israel. And you know why I know that he was judging them? In Mark chapter 11, verse 18, it says, And the scribes and the chief priests heard it. They heard that he was talking against them. And they sought how they might destroy him. So they knew that he was, he was judging them. They knew that he was criticising them. So their first plan of attack was, to, how do we kill this guy? Turn to Matthew chapter 23. This is now the chapter just before the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 23, verse 13. Okay, Matthew 23, verse 13. We'll read verse 13 and 14, and then we'll go to verse 29. Now look at the judgment that Jesus pronounces on the, Phar- on the religious leaders of the day. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater condemnation. Now go down to verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that are upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not... Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now that is one strong judgment. And who is he judging? He's judging the house of Israel and the religious leaders of the day. They failed to see his coming. So he, dis- he chose to judge them because of their unbelief because of their hard-heartedness. In fact, he says that they, they were so bad that they, they were, weren't going into heaven themselves, but they were stopping other people from going into heaven too. You want that? He goes, you shut up heaven against men from going in and you, you don't enter in yourself. That's how bad the situation actually was. They stopped others from becoming saved. Jesus calls them the children of all those who killed the prophets. Jesus says that he he was the one who sent them prophets. He was the one who sent them scribes and wise men. 
and they ended up killing and persecuting all of them. And he then says to them, your house is left to you desolate. Desolate, which means empty, dead, void. A bit like a fig tree that's been cursed and withers away and can't do anything anymore. And Jesus then says to them, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You know there's an inherent promise in this, this little verse here. You won't see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, there's a promise that one day they will. One day they will, and they will see him, the Bible says. The condemnation of the fig tree, which would not produce fruit, was a picture of spiritual and religious Israel, led by corrupt shepherds who were false teachers. These are the false leaders who plotted to kill Jesus to keep their own people in the dark to keep them under their control and keep them in sin. The fig tree is spiritual as well. And when the Lord came seeking for fruit in his first coming, when he came looking for fruit, when he came looking to see the word of God and what it would produce in people's hearts, he found the opposite. He found people who had corrupted the word of God, who used it wrongly and whose lives did not reflect what a believer should be. They condemned them. To finish this picture, the Lord speaks of a husbandman. Turn to Matthew 21. Go back to Matthew 21, 33. Matthew 21, verse 33. Jesus speaks and refers to these people as the husbandman who were meant to be looking after a vineyard. And he was the owner of a vineyard and he, and he hires these people to look after it, to be able to produce the fruit, and as the owner of the vineyard, he was to receive the benefit of it. Okay? Now, there's no fig tree. The difference is, though, that these guys were the husbandmen. Okay? Matthew 21, 33. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants, beat one and killed another and stoned another. Does that match up what he just said before about the, the Pharisees? That they killed everyone he sent to them? This is the same thing he's talking about. Verse 36. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto these husbandmen? And they said unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said, saith, saith unto them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I say I unto you, 
The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. That picture is exactly what happened. God and the Son of God sent prophets, sent his servants to his people. And they kept killing them over and over and over again. And then finally, he sent his son. And they decided to kill his son. And the ones who killed his son were of the same line, the same spirit that killed all the prophets before them. Jesus says, you are descendants of those guys. You have the same spirit as them. And you're plotting to kill me, which they were and they did. The men who were responsible for the spiritual care of God's people were turning his people away from him. They weren't saved themselves. They didn't follow God's commandments themselves and they stopped other men from following them too. Instead of producing the fruits of righteousness, holiness, love, reverence, peace and commitment to the Lord God, they did the exact opposite. God judged the nation of Israel and God judged the spiritual void that he found when he arrived to this earth. So if this fig tree does represent the spiritual Israel, the religious Israel, what this may mean for prophecy is that when, the, when it starts to bud again, because Israel's in the dark at the moment, Israel, the Bible says, has a veil in front of their eyes. They don't see that Jesus is the Son of God who came to this earth as the Messiah to save people from their sins. They have no conception of that. Their spiritual leaders for the last 2,000 years have said Jesus is not the Messiah. So Israel today is in a spiritual darkness. The Bible says that when you see the, the bud starting to form, and if the bud is religious and spiritual Israel, it means it's come back to life. It means there will be a revival before the end. And if that revival occurs, it says that's the generation that will see all these things come to pass. Now, I haven't seen that revival yet. But the Bible says that happens during a tribulation period. But during a tribulation period, 144,000 Jewish men will rise up, will declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Saviour of the world, and they will preach to the whole world the truth of the Gospel. And the Antichrist will be so mad with them because Israel will have a spiritual revival that he will persecute Israel and he will attack them from every angle and seek to destroy them. And that's when Michael the Archangel stands up and protects them in that, those final days. We had a, a bit of a... Um, so let's close up. We had a bit of a, um, uh, a devotion on Wednesday night and we're talking about young Timothy. And the second, the second letter of Timothy, which was the last letter that Paul wrote from his, his prison cell before they were about to kill him, spoke to young Timothy because Timothy was having problems in his church. Timothy was a young pastor and he was feeling dejected. He was feeling weak. He was feeling like giving up, to be honest with you, because of all the, all the problems he was having from men in his church 
who wanted to usurp the authority, who said he was too young to understand, who didn't, who didn't want to follow God's leading. And Tim, young Timothy felt like giving up. He was a pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul said to him, be strong. Be strong, Timothy, in the grace of the Lord. Be strong. The Pharisees failed. The religious leaders of Israel have failed to this day to teach their people properly. There is a great need for leadership, though, in the church today. James tells us, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. There is a, um, there is a risk with being a leader in the church these days. And I shake when I see what's being taught in the churches these days. I shake. Because the Bible teaches that those who are in leadership, those who teach from behind a pulpit, will come under the greatest condemnation if they don't teach right. If they don't set the standard right. And what I see around us today is that most people who call themselves spiritual leaders have thrown away the word of God, the standard that he's given us, and have gone to everything else in the world to find their, their truth. And I know that God will judge. And I shake when I come behind this pulpit. Because if I don't teach you correctly, I will suffer the greatest condemnation of all of you. But you know something that I know I learned from Scripture as well? That none of you can use me as an excuse. None of you can use me as an excuse for why you didn't follow God. Did you know that? If I don't do my job properly, yeah, I'll suffer a condemnation because I'm meant to be giving uh, a record, I'm meant to be giving an account for all of you and what I did with all of you, what I've said to all of you, how I was an, how I was an example to all of you, how I spoke in front of all of you, everything, everything that I do is being monitored. But just as Israel failed to see the Messiah coming because their religious leaders were corrupt and foolish and blind, the Bible says that if a blind man leads another blind man, who falls in the ditch? They both fall in the ditch. So the guy who's behind, following along blindly, has no excuse at the end. Because you see, each and every one of us has to stand before God and give an account at least for ourselves at least so when you stand before God I would have given my account but you have to stand before him alone and you can't point the finger and say oh those people over there weren't nice to me or that pastor over there didn't teach me too well he wasn't a very nice pastor he didn't set a very good example for me do you think that will wash in front of God? No. The Bible says that each and every one of us will give an account of ourselves whether we've done good or bad in this life. Christian and non-Christian will give an account. The only blessing, the blessing we have, and I say the only, but it's, a, it's an incredible blessing, is that the Son of God allowed His Son to pay for all the sins, all the bad things that we did. But we still have to give an account. We still have to give an account for the time that we've spent on this earth and how we've used it. The saddest thing will be is that when we approach, when we come and stand before his throne, 
after he takes us to be with himself and he says, show me what you've got. Show me what you've brought. Show me your fruits. The fruits that I expected, like I, I walked up to that fig tree and I, I wanted to see fruits and there was nothing there. Tell me what fruits you're going to bring before him today. If, you, if, we, if we don't see another Christmas, when I say we, it could be all of us or it could be you or it could be me. We may not make another Christmas, you understand. What fruits do you have to bring? What fruits will you have to show him? Because if you have no fruits now, after how many years of being Christian, what fruits do you expect to have in a few months' time? Do you really think if you haven't followed the Lord properly now, if you haven't followed him, if you haven't been faithful to him for years, do you think you're going to fix up your life just before he comes? When do you think he's coming for you? He could come right now. And what will you have to show? I don't know. I don't know your life. I don't know your heart. All I know is that I'm responsible to tell you the truth. But once I've told you the truth, once I've declared the counsel of God to you, you know whose job it is to live it? You. And none of you can give an excuse. The religious leaders in Jesus' day failed in their obligation. They failed at spiritual leadership of their people. But the people followed them blindly. I will never ask you to follow me blindly. Never. In fact, everything I preach in this pulpit, I expect you to come and question. I expect you to check in your Bibles each and every time I preach. Because if I go astray, if I start preaching the wrong thing to you, and you don't bother to check what I'm preaching and question me about it, do you know who's responsible? You are. This truth is still relevant today. God expects his people to keep their spiritual leaders to account, to be responsible for their own lives, and to one day give an account where Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear those words? Because if I don't hear those words, I think I'll be crying. Imagine if he doesn't say those words to you, what will he say? They're the words I want to hear. The words I want to hear is, well done. I don't want to hear, sorry, but you messed up. You lost all your opportunities. I opened doors for you, you didn't walk through them. I gave you the, all these things and you didn't use them. You were so focused on the world that you didn't care. And then you will have the rest of eternity to live with that. God gives grace, but where grace is continually rejected, God withdraws his grace. Do you understand that? If God gives you grace, and you reject it, and he gives grace, and you reject it, and he gives grace, and you reject it, you may not give it again. So redeem the time now, because the days are evil. We are saved by grace through faith, and faith is accepting that grace. God bless you. Thank you.